Welcome again, everybody. Thanks for joining us. We're with Denise Bard today. She is a childhood abuse survivor and has turned her trauma into now advocacy for children and for people to survive and thrive. She is a speaker and also is working on a book at the moment. Hopefully that will be out soon enough. Um, I do want to give just a warning to anybody who has children around. This is going to be a podcast where you're going to want them to not be listening for this. This is for adults. Um, just so you know, giving that warning and a heads up. So if you would like to go ahead and put in headphones or move the children to another room or what have you. But we're very grateful to Denise for being willing to come on and talk about her experience and talk about how to help children who are in similar situations. So thank you, Denise. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up? And um, I know you had childhood trauma, so I guess that's probably going to be part of your story. Yeah, sure. So um, I'm from Trenton, New Jersey. Um, I So I guess I'll give you a background on my story. My um, I was born to two drug-addicted teens. My mother was 16 when she had me. Um, and I grew up on my mother's side um, and faced many forms of abuse. And um, yeah, I did, if I can go into great, well, not great detail, but I can tell you the background. Okay. Um, yeah. So my I grew up and I always say grew up because I don't like to say I was raised because you'll understand in a bit why I mean that. So I grew up um, in my mother's side of the family, which was already um, a uh, dysfunctional to the next level family. They've already had their abuse. They were already, it was like a cycle. And so I was brought into that. Um, having a mom who was 16 and drug addicted was um, not a way that you could be raised because she was still a child herself, still dealing with things. Um, so I was bounced back and forth within kinship care that started about when I was four. Um, but any time that I was with my mother, there was a lot of trauma that happened with her. And, um, yeah, so, um, where do I, uh, there's, I'm trying to make sure that I, I want to make sure that I make the words not so triggering. So, with my mom being a drug addict and when I was with her, her drug addiction had gone so bad that she actually would take me to places that I shouldn't have been taken and forced to do things that I shouldn't have been forced to do just so she can get her high. And so I spent my childhood kind of facing a lot of different things such as that um, and the other forms of abuse, your mental, your physical, psychological is the worst. And um, I found myself at 14 just done with life. And so I did not want to continue any longer. And one morning I went into our cabinet at 12. I had um, moved in with my mother back again as full time because she had gotten custody to show the courts that she was no longer a drug addict. And um, how did she how did she do that? So um, based upon what I can recall and what I know about things is that um, and I, I'm born in 75, so this whole time frame um, that I'll talk about primarily is from 75 to, I think it was like 87 that I, I moved back in with her, 87. Um, so when kinship care, court, family court takes you from from your parent, um, it's kind of like foster care. They are not providing you safe environments. They have to go through, um, you know, they have to provide and, and show the court that they are not a drug addict, that they're in a stable place that they can, you know, take care of their children. And um, she tried that several times and failed. And then that last time she had gone through, I don't even know how many um, programs and became clean and showed the court that she can, you know, provide, um, which I really hope that today's day and age that it is different from back then. I think that the of course, the system is broken, but I think and I hope that it's not as broken as it was then. Um, so, yeah, she provided, you know, 
she went through the drug rehab and came out clean, stayed clean for so long, got herself a job, did the typical things that you need to do as far as like I'm told that you have to do in order to show that you are capable to taking care of your child. Um, and I'm sure that that happens for a lot of people and that does work. And that's like the whole idea, right? This family reunification and everything happens. It's just it didn't happen that that way for me. And so my mom went from um, a cocaine addiction to um, prescription drug addiction. And that does happen as well. Um, so I had moved into her with her when I was about 12 and two years into it, I, you know, had been told every day how I was hated, how she wished I was someone else, how um, it's my fault she doesn't have a family or she doesn't have a husband or a boyfriend. Um, anything that could go wrong and happen was completely my fault. And as a kid, when you are told this over and over, you start to believe it. I mean, it's drilled into you. And I had had that happen from the time I was four. I can tell you, like, Every time, you know, she would say, well, this is your fault. This happened to you because it's your fault. This is your fault. I can't get this because this is your fault. And about eight, at 14, I was like, I, you know, I'm just something. I just don't want to be anything. So I'd gone into our closet, the cabinetry, and I grabbed out um, a handful of her pills and I crushed them into water and I started to drink. But after that first sip, I stopped. And I get a lot of people who say, did you change your mind? Were you scared? And truth be told, no, I wasn't scared. I really didn't change my mind. I did only because I, I knew just something clicked right then and there. And he knew if I did this, that she would be the victim. She would claim to be the victim. Um, my grandmother, who didn't sexually abuse me, but definitely was very psychological in her abuse, um, would have claimed the victim. And that it angered me because I'm like, no, no, I'm the victim, you know, no, I don't, you know, no, you cannot do that. So I stopped. Um, I went to the bus stop and I actually told a friend uh, who I knew was going to tell the school. And I don't know if you want to call that a cry for help, but maybe that was. And I'm OK to say that that may have been at that point. Um, she told the school and, of course, they called the police. They called. Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but what did you tell her that the abuse had been that happening? I no, I think my friends kind of knew. So when you're drilled from a young age that the things that are happening to you is your fault, you don't tell anybody anything because and that's why I never told about the abuse, because I believed I was told this is normal. Other people do this. And here's an interesting thing. And I don't ever think I've actually spoke about this before. But when I was in kindergarten, I was living with my grandmother, but my mother came in would come and go. I had a neighbor who was being molested by her father. And so I knew a little bit about that. And it just kind of made you think, well, this is all normal. I mean, if her dad does it, you know, and I'm having things happening, it's kind of normal, right? So we don't tell people because one, it's normal. Why would you say something? Two, um, when you're told that it's your fault and you're a kid, you don't want to get in trouble. So if I tell, I'm going to get in trouble. I don't want to get in trouble. Um, and I think there was a there was a couple of friends who knew things weren't right. You know, as kids, we don't always understand, at least back then, too. We didn't understand. And again, times were completely different. Um, there wasn't a lot of good touch, bad touch being taught. And there wasn't a lot of these different things that now we know when we teach. Um, but back then we didn't. So when you're drilled as a kid. Yeah, that's what you think. Um. So I did tell my friend, I was like, not to be about the abuse. I said, I just don't want to be here anymore. I just, I'm done. You know, I can't do this anymore. Um, I, I may have said, I, I think she was one of my friends who I think knew things weren't right. Um, and she was one of my friends who was the same age, but yet she was this old woman in a small body, you know? So, um, so yeah, I told her and, you know, she told the school, hey, my friend, you know, whatever, um, and so when my mom came in, she claimed the victim and I got so angry and I just told them, I'm not going home. I don't care where you take me, but I will not go home. And fortunately for me in the area that I lived, um, there was a place called Anchor House and it's a nonprofit shelter for runaway abused and homeless youth. And so 
that's where I was brought. And it was life-changing. It kind of set me on, um, the, it was the foundation for me to begin healing, to begin taking control of who I was. So I like to tell people, and I do, I share this, share, I'm going to share it in the book. Um, I walked in as something and I came out as someone. And so, yeah, there, that was um, that was one of the pivotal moments where I finally like had this like aha moment. <laughs> so, um, but I went in as soon as I got in. It was so if you're you're if you've gone through trauma as bad, you know, uh, as I have, I and, and I will say this too. There is no competition with trauma. It doesn't matter what you've gone through. If it's a trauma to you, it's a trauma. I have no judgment against other people's traumas because we we all feel this. So I when I went into Anchor House, um, the first thing I felt was safe. Like I remember taking that first breath. Like, you know, um I just I can every time I tell the story, I think about it and I just breathe. And it's hard to explain to a lot of people who if they haven't gone through trauma, it's that that breath of feeling safe for the first time when you've spent your life feeling afraid every second of every minute of every day where there wasn't that uh, ability to just let go because it was always like you were always, I mean, like literally like your muscles were always tight, worried about what was going to happen next. And as soon as I walked through the doors, it was like this release, you know. And um, the first person I'd met was my caseworker, who she is still in my life. Since I was 14, my caseworker is still in my life, has gone to my the, my uh, wedding. I mean, I love this woman to death. Um, she was the first person to show me what an unconditional hug was, like a safe hug. I never felt that before. So all these things I was having in um experiencing were all new to me. And at 14, you're learning about um, being able to be hugged and what a, a safe, unconditional, loving hug is. Being able to sleep at night without covering your head with a pillow because you're terrified what you'll see, what will happen, what you'll hear. Waking up and not being afraid of, oh my God, what's going to happen to me today? Um, I just, all these little things started to happen for me. And I, it was like, I don't want to say it was I was born into this moment at 14, but emotionally I was because I finally started to learn the things that, you know, I give my kids, you know, your kids, you teach them certain things. But in these moments, I wasn't. So I had spent all this time being someone's something, you know, the something that would pay for a drug addiction, something that would be beat because you know of anger of of drug withdrawal and if you've if you've faced a parent who's gone through drug withdrawal or maybe a spouse it is like looking the devil in the eyes and it's a image that just shears you right through your soul i mean like it just goes right through you so i had spent all this time facing this devil and these little things that were happening that now i'm faced with almost this like, oh, I don't even know what to do. Like, what do I do? I've never been in a situation like this. What do I do? Um, but what came out of there is three things for me. And, uh, you know, I'll keep referencing back to this, but my uh, <clears throat> my counselor taught me three things. First, what happened to you is not your fault. And I'm still working on that. That is something that I don't think I'll ever stop working on because when you reflect back to your... Um, you know, the different things like I get triggered a lot. And I think back at that, I'm constantly thinking, well, what was I doing that that happened to me? What did I do wrong? I had to have done something wrong. There has to be a reason that this happened. And so um, her telling me that it it was, you know, it was huge, but at the same point, it never told her everything. So keep in mind, I went in there without telling the real abuse because I was afraid. And so they just knew I didn't want to go home and that things weren't okay because that, you know, in child in my elementary school days, you know, we'd have uh, social workers come and go checking because I was in kinship care. 
So as far as they knew, it was just, um, I don't know, family, family dynamic trauma, but not like the real abuse because I was so afraid to say anything, um, especially to my counselor, because I like I loved her to death. She was like this big sister that took care of you. And so I never wanted to lose her. So I was afraid, well, I caused these physical things that happened to me. I can't tell anybody. Um, but she told me, and I still hear it in my head every single day, it's not your fault. And it is something that I know that I have to continue to work on. Because I don't think that we'll ever, at least some of us, won't ever get to that point where you're right, it wasn't my fault. And I could tell you certain things. I'm like, nope, that wasn't my fault. But there's always something that makes you go, huh, you know? Um, the second thing she said, things are always going to be harder before they can get better. And I would be so angry about that because I'm like, how much harder can it be? Like, I can't take anymore. I cannot take anymore. And the truth is she is so right. It was like, those were so hard that now I can start to get better. Now things will start to make sense. And then the third thing, which, um, is part of why Uh, or part of my resiliency. It is part of the thing that I talk most about to, um, to teachers, to people in positions to help kids, to other survivors, because I think we can all reflect back on this. She said, look around, there's somebody and there, look around because there are people around you who care about you and want you to do well. And she would tell me that every time we had counseling and I would get so angry because I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, I have to focus on the abuse. I need to survive. I I don't have time. Like, I need to survive. We're in this survival mode, so we're so tunneled into what's in front of us that we do forget that there's all this other stuff around us. And so it kind of clicked. And at the time, obviously, I I was like, you know, um, what did I call it? I'm like shifting my view. But really, hindsight is she was saying, shift your focus. Don't focus on that. Shift your focus. Because a lot of time you'll hear people say, oh, we'll change your perspective. Well, you can't do that on every situation. You can't. I cannot change the perspective or change my perspective of what happens to me. There's no angle in it. But what happened was I shifted my focus. And once I did that, just everything became clear. You know, everything started to, oh, man, like I started to recognize all these people. And during that time, um, it just, something triggered. And and I don't know, I don't have an explanation for it. It's just um, one day, one of the teachers that I had was actually a volunteer there at Anchor House. Now, I, I don't know how that worked out. It was like divine intervention. I'm not even sure. But um, she was my eighth grade math teacher and she was my absolute favorite teacher and not because math like I totally sucked at math so I don't know how I connected with her but something drew me to her and and she would actually give me rides back and forth to the shelter because we were all coming from different areas so there wasn't a bus that could take you to and from school and I was in eighth grade I don't remember those car rides maybe one but I don't remember them but what I remember and this is what I talk about is a 30 second moment and this was the first one and the one that changed everything for me. One day we were um, in school and her classroom was across from my locker. And I'm at my locker and I'm pulling out books, doing something. And she called me over. She's my favorite teacher. I'm going to zip on over there. And I, I did. I ran over and um, someone had come in to see her. And I remember this as if it's happening right now. She pushed my hair off my shoulders because I had really long curly hair. And she pushed my hair off my shoulders and then placed her hands there and said, this is my Denise. And man, in that moment, like I can tell you right now, every time I say it, it's like right here. In that moment, I had felt for the very first time in my life that I could actually be someone was wanted like I'd grown up being told nobody would ever want you I don't want you that I really believed that I wasn't worthy like I wasn't worth being someone but in that 30 second moment I went from 
you know, not knowing what that felt to this like heavy, and I say heaviness, it's not a bad heaviness. It's this like deep, deep feeling. And I know that's not what she meant. It was such an innocent moment and it was such an innocent sentence. But she said something that I never heard before, which caused me to feel something I had never felt before. And so I call those the 30 second moments which it transcends the time that it actually took for her to say something to me. So it could have been big, huge things going on in my life. Just that slight little moment, that is what started my um, my road to this kind of recovery or healing, as you call it, that I started to now recognize things. And these 30-second moments started to build upon themselves. Um, so about... I'd say six months later, I had been back in my house because reunification is always the goal by the system. Um, I don't understand how they can do it, but they do it. And so reunification happened and I was back living with my mother. And um, actually, let me take this back. There was so much happening. I had gotten out of Anchor House and they sent me to an uncle. And unfortunately, that home environment was not good at all either. Um, I ran away and begged my mother to let me come back and live with her. And so I did. And that, and people will ask me why. And I said, um, because I knew how to survive. So we live in this abusive environment. And what's scary about that is that we're scared of it, yet we know how to survive in it. When you put us in another environment that we haven't been trained for, it's it's kind of like, no, 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 you know, I, I'll go back to the abuse because I know how to get through that versus the W know versus the W know. Yes, yes. And it's there's something funny about that, too. Um, and I'll say that I'll, I'll say that after this. Um, when I had begged for her to come, let me come back. I got to go back into my school where I knew everybody. It was my safety zone. Um, it's just where I was. And I was oh, good, you know. So then um, about, I guess it was like six months later, I had gone then to high school at this point and beaten down again. Um, you know, the physical abuse started coming again. I learned some strategies with that. I tell this story because somebody else out there might understand this and know that it, it is okay. I laughed. Okay. So I'm saying this because I know that there are other survivors who are like, oh my God, I did too. I thought I was weird. No, you're not weird. I learned survival skill of this. When my mother would hit me, I learned if I laughed, and I don't know how it started, but whatever it did, but if I laughed, the harder she hit, the harder I laughed, the quicker it was over. And she'd like, oh, you're crazy, and walk away. So I, I learned a survival skill, and I still laugh because my cousin and I have been in the same situations, and we laugh about these moments. They're not funny to most people, but to us, it's kind of what one of those, it's okay. Like I could tell another survivor, it's okay. We can share a story and laugh about it where somebody else will be like, that's so horrific. I can't believe it. I'm like, no, but that's our survival. You know, that's what we did to survive. Um, so I had a lot of that, but I also, again, continued with the beat down of the you're not wanted. I hate you. I wish you were someone else. It was constant and everyday type of thing. Um, and again, at 16, I was, I was done i just didn't I, I was like i cannot do this anymore and you know what i don't care if they claim victim i just want out i want out i want some i i just want to not hurt anymore and so i decided i was going to go to my last basketball practice and something you should know is i'm five foot tall there's nothing on me that like screams to you that i would play basketball and i really didn't but the coach at the time had been my soccer coach and I remember walking into that practice. She came right beside me and she like threw her arm and took me into this headlock. And as she did, she's like, you know what? I think I'm going to take you under my wings. And again, like time stopped and that 30 second moment happened. She knew nothing about my background, like nothing. She didn't know where I'd been. Like this was all fresh and new. Like I was just some kid to her, right? And in that moment, like, I remember just feeling like I mattered. And 
you know, earlier in that day, I didn't matter. I didn't matter to anyone, at least in my head, I didn't matter. And in that moment, she's like, no, you matter to me. Well, needless to say, it prevented me from going through with what my actions were going to be. Well, um, so you, you had a second suicide attempt planned. I had it planned out. I hadn't done it yet because I wanted to go to my practice to kind of say goodbye. And so, yeah, it was going to follow my practice. And it didn't. But because that moment, in that moment, she just made me feel like I mattered. Somebody's looking out and seeing me. And so about this time, I'm starting to build on this. And I really didn't understand it quite yet. But as hindsight, I look at these moments and I'm like, wow, I went, I got built up there to this one. And when I was about to fall off, another moment came. So all these moments came to build me up. And my high school teacher about the same time was a, a gym teacher, my health gym teacher. I don't know how we got close, but I got close to her where she could actually read me, where it's like she knew I needed to talk. Again, still not sharing what's happening to me, but it was, I'm off. And so um, she would call me over and come into my car and want to talk to me. And I think it's funny because, you know, nowadays you can't do that. Like you can't go in your teacher's car and sit there and talk. Um, but she always brought me and she was like, the first thing she would do is she's tap me on my knee and say, come on, how is your day? How are you doing? What's going on? Those little things. And like, it would just like, it's that 30 second moment again, where I went from not feeling worthy about anything to my God, somebody's invested in me. Somebody wants to know me. Do you know what I mean? Again, I wasn't still telling. I think that's something that a lot of people are like, well, you never told. No, I didn't. But yet I still survived. It was because I built all these little like moments. Um, and what came out of that, again, this, this constant of I'm gaining these different feelings. I'm gaining these different feelings. And I realized too, well, I didn't realize my daughter told me this. Two years ago, my daughter turned 18. And growing up, I never told her about my past. Um, we stopped talking to my mother because I was still terrified all the way into my almost 40s that I was like still scared of her um, and my family that um, I just, I allowed contact, but I was always walking on eggshells. And then uh, my husband's in the Air Force, was in the Air Force. We were out of the state I had grown up in. So I kind of had that safety now. And so I blocked everybody. I blocked it and I started fresh. Um, not that it was easy. Had a lot of like, you know, things were happening, but I wanted my kids to never have to face anything. I never wanted them to to walk on eggshells. So I never told my daughter anything. She had she had forgotten who that person was, and but I never told her. And I, as she got older, she was more inquisitive. And then um, when she turned 18, I had said, you know, to her, listen, when you turn 18, you could ask me about my childhood. It just wasn't bad. But if you want, you want more information, you have to wait till you're 18. And she did. So as I'm telling her about my, you know, childhood and past, and I only shared with her the things I was comfortable with, um, I never sh shared with her how I was, you know, a form of payment trafficking, if you will. Um, I never shared that with her, um, but I shared everything else that I was most comfortable with. And at the end, I said, you know, I just wish I had a mom because if I had a mom, I feel like I could be a good mom to you, a better mom to you. I would know what to do. And she stopped me and I'm driving and she like put her hand on my arm and I almost like you know, startled me, but she was like, mom, I love the way that they raised you because I love the way you raised me. Like that moment, that moment happened. And it was, as we talked, it was those 30 second moments that I learned how to feel wanted. I knew that feeling. I was able to give that to her. She's like, I've never not felt it wanted. I never felt like I didn't matter. And I always know that you're going to be there if I want to talk to somebody. If I need someone to talk, you will always ask me, how is my day? All these little things I went from not having to now I can give to my kid. And it's funny because people will tell you all the time, give your kids what you never had. And I would get angry. I'm like, I don't know what that is. I've never had it. How can I give them something I've never had? Well, here it was. I did. 
And I never knew that. So I really found out just how powerful little moments in your life can be two years ago and like really how that impacted me. And that's kind of how I was like, you know what, I'm really going, I'm going to share this because somewhere out there, there's a survivor, there's a kid, there's an adult, there's an adult who sees that there may be a 30 second opportunity to help a kid. There's a survivor who one, it, they can reflect back and go, you're right. You know what? I made it to this section. I made it to that section. Or I needed to know that, oh, that feeling? Yeah, that's what I want to give to my kids. And then, you know, it, it, we just need to know that we're not alone. At, and no matter where you are in your healing or, you know, if you're an adult, I mean, I'm 48. And it was, you know, in the last five years that all this stuff went, wow, <laughs> like, all click. So you're never too old. And yet you're never too young um, to know that you can still be like who you want to be. So I always say, I'm not the story. I'm not someone else's story. I am actually my story, the story I wrote for myself. So they always, I think somebody said to me once, um, or I heard this, you look like your mother and father when you're born, but you look like your decisions when you die. And so that's pretty powerful. So now I'm, you know, those were my decisions. So now I know when I die, I'm writing, I am creating my own story. So I'm going from something to someone. Wow. <clears throat> um, there is a lot that I can say about that, but I want to move this forward in a way that will benefit the audience. Yes. So I want to ask you a question for someone who is an adult and sees a child that they think, like you, something might be wrong, and I don't know what's wrong. And you said you never told anybody. Mm -mm. Two questions. Do you wish that you had actually told somebody? And secondly, um, assuming that the answer is yes, which I, I would assume it is, I don't know. Um, if an adult has a child in their life that they suspect might be enduring similar things to what you endured, how can they, what can they do to let that child trust them enough so that they do reveal the abuse so that they can be extracted from that abusive situation? Yes, I do wish. It's one of my regrets. I wish that I would have told. I think, you know, again, the reason I didn't was because I was drilled one, you don't tell. Two, it's your fault anyway. And three, this is normal. Um, I also think times have changed. So again, back then, there wasn't the good touch, bad touch, this touch. I was also told um, I would be taken and given to mean people who would hurt me. It's, it's, it's really interesting to try to think of what, you know, they would say, like, I... I um, because I thought about this, like I thought, well, what would somebody have said to me? And I've had, when I was growing up, there were people like social workers would come in, like they'd saw a bruise or something. What happened to you? Again, you're trained to say, because you think it's your fault. I think that it, probably it would be a building of, um, and again, times have changed. I think we teach kids more these days about good things, bad things. But I think it really comes down to it is not your fault. You know, I don't want you to be afraid. It's not your fault. And, you know, um, if I knew that it wasn't my fault, I think I would have been able to say something. So I don't know exactly how to to um, teach a child that. But it's that if I was if I felt it wasn't my fault and I and I knew I wouldn't get in trouble. Because I think a lot of times that, you know, kids, that's the first thing that I've, I've had other people say is, man, they told me I'd be in trouble if I said something. They told me I'd be in trouble if I said something. I mean, here I was 17 years old talking to my teacher in the car, the perfect opportunity. Um, but we're afraid that if we say something to some people that they're going to leave us because that's what would happen to me. They get that close to telling somebody and my grandmother and my mother made sure they were never near me. So I couldn't get to that point. Um yeah, it's, it's, that's really, <laughs> I have, I've been asked that I've been told that, and I don't know that there's one specific thing. I think it's going to be individualized as to, 
knowing the demeanor of a child and maybe just reiterating that, you know, that if something was wrong, you know, it is not your fault. Anything that's happened, it's not your fault. Do you know what I mean? I, I think that that's it. It's, it's one of those difficult. I don't think that there's one true answer. Um, if you had ever heard a phrase similar to, say in passing, you had heard someone say to another person, we don't hit children, adults shouldn't hit children or anything like that. Would that have helped your childhood mind break out of that normalization and that it's my fault? Would that, you know, you're talking about 30 second. Um, and would something like that have helped or was it so deeply entrenched that you would have just thought, why would they say that? Well, I think for me, it would have been that deep because I mean, again, when you're a kid and you learn from an early age, this is, and we've had that, you know, um, but again, back then, people did get hit. You would get hit with a belt. You would get hit with, that was normal, right? That was normal. It's just, where did it cross the line? I think that's the best question is, where does it cross the line of okay discipline to not okay discipline? Um, so nowadays, I mean, yeah, you want to, you know, I tell my kids, you know, as they grow up, I have a seven, uh, an 18 year old and an almost 20 year old. Um, you know, they grew up knowing that, you know, they could get a spanking. I mean, that was, you know, we spanked on the butt or the hand, but that was when they were like little and trying to learn little things. But they know, you know, they know that's not okay. And, and you know what I mean? There's a line or whatever. Um, yeah, I think, again, it comes to the point where, um, you know, what type of, that's hard because of how times have changed with discipline right that is like so hard to tell and stuff now if you say to a kid we don't hurt people we don't you know um you shouldn't be slapped or you shouldn't be hit in the face you shouldn't be this you shouldn't be that um then it was well what did you do what did you do to deserve that right you must have done something to get hit you know when you're at this age um how they teach kids this today uh, you know it is probably the you know we don't hit people like you know you shouldn't be hurt um, things like that. What about the, I think a lot of people haven't heard of this, the bad touch, good touch teaching um, for parents who haven't heard of it or don't know what it is about. Could you educate us on that? Oh, sure. Yeah. So, you know, if somebody would have said to me, um, you know, would have said, oh, well, um, bad touch is when you touch in this area. Has anybody ever touched you in this area? Or I wouldn't say, has anybody ever touched you? I would first start out as, you know, um, you know, a good touch is you can hug somebody. Mom loves you. I'm going to hug you. A bad touch is that hug maybe goes down to areas that you shouldn't be, you know, in. Um, I, I think I saw something over the course of the last 20 years where um, I was watching a documentary or a, um, I guess it's a documentary where they had dolls, right? We all have dolls. And the therapist had pointed out, this is an area that's a bad touch. This is an area that's a bad touch. And getting to understand that those areas are not good things. What's good things? What's not good things? I think if somebody would ask me, you know, those specific words that, you know, have you been touched down here? Have you been touched here? I absolutely probably would have said something not thinking in myself that that's, you know, that'll get me in trouble because they're just asking me these simple questions, you know? So, um, you know, grow with my kids, it was like, you know, if somebody touches you in this area, if somebody makes you feel uncomfortable or just different things like that, I want you to come to me. Like I'm hypervigilant too. So like, I was like, anybody who comes here, my kids, even if they have the best intentions, I am like, mm -mm, I don't like, no, that's not good. I just, th that's how my mind is, is, is done. But I wish that the good touch, bad touch was taught back then because I know for a fact I would have said something. Yeah. And it would have got you out a lot faster. Yeah. And so yeah. I, I saw a video the other day of, I believe it was an Indian classroom where the teacher had a student stand up and she was doing a demonstration of good touch, bad touch. She would do a touch and the child had to say, just stand there and be like, that's fine. And if she start and she demonstrated bad touch, the girl would go, no. She threw her hands out and like pushed the hands away to demonstrate what you do if someone starts to touch you 
and yeah. I think it was um, physically like between the shoulders and the knees, like someone stroking you and that sort of thing. And then she would just go, no. And it was a demonstration to all the other students to, oh, I loved that they did that because I don't remember um, that being in a curriculum before. And I love that it's there now. Yeah, no, there wasn't anything of that, you know, again, like I grew up in the late 70s or in 80s and we definitely didn't have things. I mean, they weren't even teaching sex ed at that point in time. So like, I don't think anybody would ever, but um, yeah, no, I think that that's, that was probably one of the, you know, things that hindered a lot of people was, was not knowing where and what. And I, yeah, that, that's pretty powerful to have, like, you know, especially like you just said, from the shoulders down to the knees, that's your area. That's the biggest area. Like we need to understand what's okay, what's not okay. And so I, I, you know, I have a son who's 17, he has autism and so higher functioning, but you know, he's not always with me. He has, you know, people at school on different things. And I have always taught him, you know, this is like, if anybody ever does this, unfortunately we had, um, when he was younger, there was one of his classmates who was in a foster home was getting molested. And so I, you know, had, oh, Carson, we don't do this or we don't do that or that's not okay. We don't, you know, you you use the wording and trying to figure out and make sure that they understand these are areas in which it's not your fault if somebody touches you, but you should tell them, you know, and you're not in trouble because that was the thing you're not in trouble and I'm not, you know, don't worry, you're not in trouble type of thing. Cause I think we're told you'll be in trouble. Yeah. Well, unfortunately I've heard of incidents similar to that happening, especially to children who do have um, different brain abilities, whether in any direction, which is sad. But um, I wanted to ask you though, about after you got away, finally, how did you transition through young adulthood into finally becoming a mother? Well, I became a mother before I really came away from them. Um, I think it was, first of all, I have an incredible husband and I always say like it was, you know, he was meant to be in my life and be in the Air Force and be able to take me out of an environment which helped me to really kind of make that change, even though um, I was still afraid you know, as an adult, I'm 48. I was 30 something before I had a little bit of courage to like cut everybody off. Um, but during like that younger years, you know, you make some mistakes, you do some things, you know, you learn your way through things. Um, but I think for me again, like, and I don't mean how crazy this is, but again, I think those little moments really helped me continuously as I grew up even into my adult life because, you know, there were part of you that, um, like my daughter said, they collectively made a mom for me. Like all these women weren't a mom, but they collectively made me one. So I was constantly on the, you know, I don't want to disappoint them. I don't want to disappoint. If they see me again one day, I don't want them to be disappointed. I, it sounds like kind of like a weird thing, but it's no, it sounds like psychological abuse is what it sounds like. Yeah. 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 So I, um, so going into my adulthood, I, you know, it was a hard balance. It was hard to figure out. I knew who I didn't want to be though. I think that that was a big thing. I knew who I didn't want to be. And as a mom, um, when I became a mom, it became more clear those, those moments and those teachings that these women did for me, it was like, right it was if they taught if they were my mom and taught me how this is. So it right away, I just felt, felt that like, I love my kid. I want this kid. It was, you know, in my mind, that's how I was. And that's how I felt. So it was good that I had felt that before. And I went into it. Um, oh, uh, wait, I just want to clarify when you said the women that collectively made your mom, you didn't want to disappoint. Were you talking about your actual mom and grandmother or were you talking about the women who had mentored you women who mentored me ah okay so i talk about yeah okay. so for me um these women who gave me these 30 second moments now it sounds so whatever but these are these 30 second moments so when you put them together would be a mom because these are the things that i'm giving to my own children i had them just different times by different women 
Right. And okay. so that learning kind of helped me. And and again, I went into, I just didn't want to be that mom. I wanted to be me. And I wanted my kid to never face the same things. And again, I was very, I am very lucky that I have an incredible husband. So, you know, although we have completely two separate upbringings and really he didn't know a lot about mine, um, in which a lot of people are like, really? And I'm like, yes. I said, because I wanted him to know me and not know that. And so um, that helped. <laughs> that has helped me. But um, as far as being a mom, it, it's still difficult. I will tell you that. I mean, my kids are older. I'm older. But not ha having a mom has always been a struggle for me. I don't think that that is ever going to go away. Um, because my kids are at different stages in their life, and I don't know how to parent that way. I know nobody comes with a book, but a lot of times, if you are lucky enough, you have a mom to call and say, oh, my God, my kid's going through this. What did you do when I went through it? Or something like that. I don't have that. Um, so it's been a lot of um, trial and error. But I also know to ask for help now as an adult. So I will reach out to um, you know, I'll, I'll talk to friends or to be honest, I have a couple of these teachers now in my life still. So I've been able to like, you know, man, I'm at this stage with my kid and they've just given me a little bit and that's been nice. That's been nice, but it still isn't the same as going back, you know, with a child. So I think for us as survivors, being a parent, it's always going to be a work in progress. For sure. For sure. But with that, um, you know, I'm really impressed about your husband and yeah. that you were able to find him. And it made me think of something. I know a lot of women, when they grow up in an abusive situation, end up marrying someone who abuses them as well. How is it that you managed to find such a wonderful husband who treats you so well? Um, you know, I, I it's a good question. Um, and again, I know this, I keep going back and back and back about these moments. I think because I looked at all these different women and removed myself from what was happening to me at home and like kind of collectively like seeing these different things in life, um, I knew what I wanted and not what I didn't want. And that's not to say I didn't make mistakes. Um, I've met a few share of people um, but again, I was fortunate and I didn't get into an abusive relationship and wasn't the greatest ones, but um, <laughs> I made my share. But um, yeah, I, I don't have a really good answer on that, except to say that I reflected back on the women I saw in my life. Um, of course, I didn't see their marriages except for my high school teacher, the one who would talk to me. Her husband was my other teacher. And so, and they were so opposite, but so great together. <laughs> so um, I didn't have a lot of role models. Everybody in my life was divorced three, four times, never got married. Um, like statistically, I shouldn't have what I have. Like statistically, I shouldn't have this wonderful marriage. We've been married for 22 years. Um, you know, I, I, I think, again, it just goes back to trying to think of every woman that I had met and and learning that that's the kind of woman I wanted to be. And I think that that kind of helped me in knowing what I what, what I didn't want. But I, I, I'm just very, <clears throat> I hate to say fortunate, lucky. It just happened. Like it just happened where I got this incredible person. <laughs> so. it's, it sounds to me like you created an amalgamation of these exemplars in your life. Yeah. And molded that into the person you wanted to be. And I'm wondering, especially with the, um, as we have, we do focus on a stage of becoming a person you want to be so that you're ready for marriage. And I'm wondering when that happened and you were creating this, like you said, you are making your own story. When you were doing that, you said, again, your husband didn't know your past before. And it made me think, that you molded yourself into the kind of person who would attract the kind of person that he is. And then by doing so, you, um, yeah, you paved the way to find, um, to find happiness instead. Of, and you also paused, didn't you? Like you said, you actually thought about it instead of just rolling through the process, through the 
never-ending abusive cycle and carrying that on. You actually stopped and separated yourself from it and said, I'm not going to do that. This is how I want to be. Is that fair? No, yeah, absolutely. To a T. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, I couldn't probably explain it any better than you just did. But it is. It's true. It's it's um, for me with my husband. It was, um, you know, he has met my family, you know, obviously. But I had tried to keep um, my life separate, you know, so that I was over here living the adult life that I wanted and would only allow trickles of this other time. Um, and I think a lot of people say, well, how didn't you tell him everything? Why didn't you tell him everything? I said, because in my mind, if I did, he would run. Not to say that he would have, but we're so afraid to share our past, especially if you've had these abusive environments and stuff, because people look at you um, and feel sympathy instead of having an intimate relationship, instead of having this adult relationship, they're looking at you as, I'm just going to say it, a damaged thing that they don't know how to fix because people want to fix you too. And I didn't want them to fix me. I'm, I'm fixing myself. Like nobody else can do it for me. I got to do it myself. So, um, yeah, I didn't tell him. I mean, obviously he knows now, especially like the last 10 years. Um, and there's a lot that he doesn't want to know and not because he doesn't want to know it. It's that he can't imagine me being treated the way that I was. Um, so I'm okay with that because, but yeah, you just don't, um, I wanted myself to be the person that I wanted to be, that I am, that I had become with my husband and not what I was growing up. So you, at what point did you leave home and did you go to university and how did you meet him? Like, what was the transitional phase? So, um, I didn't get to go to college because I didn't have the finances. I didn't have a lot of support um, to teach me about scholarships, teach me about different ways to um, get, you know, um, financial aid. I didn't have any of that. So I tried. I went to community college, um, but I was when I lived with my mother, um, I had to start giving her money to help her. And so, you know, I would work. And it was difficult for me to work, do that, and go to school and and try to become something from school. Um, 19, I had moved out. I was back and forth again because during this whole time, I was back and forth between, like, I'll live with my grandmother, my uncle, uh, my mother. And it was just a constant whatever. But it was about 19 when I, like, moved out, moved out. And I kind of, you know, shifted between places. Um from about like 19 and I think I met my husband about when I was 24 25 and at that point I had gotten an apartment by myself I had been working um a state job so I had an income coming in and so I was independent on my on my own and I think that that is a big thing so because I was independent I didn't rely on someone else and I think if we can do things by ourselves and we don't get back into that cycle of needing someone else to take care of us or try and have, try and find someone to take care of us because we don't need that. And I think that that's a huge thing. I think for me, that was, that was definitely what helped me to be the adult in situations because I was able to be by myself. I was able to um, pay for my own stuff. Um, I wish though that I had gone to college. Um, but it just didn't, you know, work out for me. So it was, you know, making your dumb mistakes as your young adult until you find that that place where you can be, you know, you get into this independent thing. So but I think that that's really important. I think if you have the opportunity, you should strive to be able to do it all by yourself, to know that you have the capability of being that person. OK, um, I would love to talk about that more, but since we, I have about 30 other questions to put <laughs> in my brain for you, um, because we do talk about the different stages of life that women go through. So you've met your husband and then yeah. you become married and obviously you have children. So you were physically intimate at some point. Um, and I do want to talk about several things. First off, when you found out you were pregnant, 
how was that psychologically knowing that you were going to be the one raising a child? And how did you prevent yourself from repeating the learned behaviors that you had seen? But before that, I want to ask for women who have gone through abuse and now they're faced with physical intimacy, which can feel like a, a, a barrier. How was it? Did you go through a therapy for that? How did you get yourself to be able to be comfortable with that, knowing your past and your history? Yeah, that's I've never had that question before. I did not go through therapy with that. I never talked about it. Um, even as an adult, I really didn't go into details of things. Um, I think that I, there are points in intimacy, yeah, that you're kind of like, whoa, right? Um, but I think because I was, and I guess maybe the coping skill, I don't know, or whatever skill it is, is I separated myself from the past. And so, yes, there are things where it was, maybe a little uncomfortable. And I think for me, I had to keep reminding myself, this is not who my past is. And keeping him separate from my family made a big difference for me as far as the intimacy went, because I didn't have that, um, you know, it was just a separate life. No cross-contamination. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, I had problems over, you know, my young course of life when, you know, I was intimate and there were times where it was very difficult. But these were people that also, you know, um, knew my family, not for anything. They knew my family through me, but there was still that connection that this was different. It was just a different thing. Um, and as far as becoming a mom, I mean, I was super excited and scared all at the same time, excited to be a mom scared to be a mom but I was also sad like I had this like heavy sadness because I didn't have a mom and so I'm gonna be a mom and I'm excited about that but this heaviness that I don't have somebody to share with my mother was still in my life but I had always like I didn't want her to come to soccer games I didn't want her to come to anything I made excuses for her not to come visit us on you know wherever we lived I didn't because for me, that was facing a sexual abuser every day of my life. If I looked at her any time, I, I, I'm looking at my sexual abuser. <laughs> so um, so being a mom and coming out, you know, having to be a mom really kind of hit me. It was hard. And how I prevented myself from being that um, cycle again, I think, too, again, I have like I had a great spouse and partner. Um, his life growing up was completely different. And his parents have been deceased prior to meeting me. So I think that also may have played a role because it was only the two of us. You know, we relied on each other and he didn't know how to, how to hold a baby. So it was kind of like we were going into this all new together. Um, but again, I reflect back to the women who gave me those feelings. And I knew that that's what I wanted to give to my children. I just didn't know if I could do it. So it's, it's, there's a lot of emotion when you become a parent after facing so much trauma, but I think we know in our mind what we don't want to happen. And we know in our mind, like what we do, we just don't know if we can do it. But there's that sadness of not having someone for yourself to go to and that, you know, all of it is on you now. So when the rubber hits the road and you're in the middle of a tantrum or someone's having a meltdown and you've seen your mom react to things that are far less severe, and obviously that will trigger memories. How did you keep yourself from falling into the same types of patterns? Knowing I didn't want to be her. I just didn't want to be her, so what do I need to do? Maybe it was a different form of, like, you know, of, you know, disciplining my child. Also, you know, you have friends that... um they have children about the same age. What are they doing? Like, I'm always like listening. I was always getting from my friends too, you know, who were, who were having kids um, or groups that I might have been in. And, and they're like, oh, yeah, we had this and that. This is what I did. And I would just take that. I would try all these other methods. My daughter was honorary. So I don't even know if any of those methods really worked. But, um, it, it you know, it all worked out. But I knew who I didn't want to be. I just had to navigate it with knowing that I just need to keep my ears open and let all the positive people in my life 
be able to learn from them, friends, just different things. So you had a built-in break between stimulus of the child doing something and you reacting. You had a built-in automatic break, hard break. I don't want to do this. I don't want to be my mom. Oh, absolutely. And especially as they grew into teenagers, like I, you know, I found myself yelling at my daughter. And then it was a point in time where I was like, I don't want to yell anymore. I just don't want to yell anymore. I don't want to, I'm, you're going to be, and you know, I said, you're going to be honorary. You're going to test my limits, but I don't want to yell anymore. So I'm going to walk away until I could get my head on so that I come back and talk to you. And that was the hardest thing to ever happen because, I mean, I can argue with anybody. But that was really, really hard to do. Um, but I'm glad I did it and that's how it worked. But, yeah, you had to have a break. I mean, sure, there were times where I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to, like, scream out the, like, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. yeah. But it was... It was kind of one of those where I just I just reminded myself like I I was afraid of my mother still and I didn't want to be that any to her. So it, it was knowing that I never wanted I don't want to be her. I don't want to look like her. I don't want to be her. What do we need to do not to be her? That's all I knew. And that's what I was going. That's how I did everything. I don't want to be her. So I want to be I want to do something different. When you were talking about watching all those women around you, helping you or, or seeing. It, it came to mind the picture of a gleaner, someone who just goes around and gathers everything that they can that is helpful for their family. And it seems like you got really good at picking up whatever you could because you had to piece together almost like constructing your own um, human, you know, mm -hmm. picking up and putting pieces of, of Denise. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was a sponge. Just give me, like, I just wanted to take it all in. I didn't know what was going to really work or what wasn't. But, you know, it was, oh, okay, this person did this. They seem like a like a good human being and they're, you know, in this really good space. I want to remember that. So let me practice that. Let me practice that. Yeah, absolutely. And it could be, I mean, like it, it, it just could have been anybody, but... You know, I just, yeah, you just have to. You have to find positives and try it. You don't know what's going to work for you. It's like they say, you can't, there's no book on parenting, right? So you just got to wing it. But um, but you still would like guidance. So I didn't have that in a mother form. So I had to. I had to look around and what I felt was a good, like, I'm going to try that. Seems good. And it seems like a good person's thing. Let me try this and stuff. So, yeah absorb what you can that's really good advice especially for people who have been raised in a situation with women that they don't want to emulate or maybe even fathers they don't want to emulate but whatever behavior it is um and just to to make sure you find good examples um before we wrap up though i wanted to ask you are there any takeaways or advice you've given so many in this interview are there any key takeaways that you would like to emphasize? Well, there's a few. I mean, obviously, I gave it, you know, your your thing. One, one is if, if you are someone in a kid's life, just know that you are probably affecting them more than you think. You are probably making some type of an impact by just a little thing that you say. And I wish for, like, teachers, anybody's listening. It doesn't have to be big. Just give them, like, look and look at them in the eyes and see them as a person because maybe they can't get it out of this situation, but they're going to get something from you. And if you're an adult survivor, really, you can change. Like, you, we're always going to be on healing process, so I just want to make sure the takeaway is this. We always will be healing, and you are not alone. There are so many things that people are facing, and it's okay if you haven't heard your voice or found your voice yet. That's okay. We all find things in our own timing. Um, and that look back at just the positives. It's so easy to only see negative things from the past. And that's normal. There's nothing wrong with you <laughs> for doing that because I do it too. But I also want to take control of my past. So by saying that as I control what I want to remember. And so if you can start to shift that and remember the positive things, the people who were positive to you and how you felt in that moment. Um, and you build upon that. And that really kind of gives you courage and strength and helps you to separate yourself from 
um, what your story was supposed to be to what your story is now. I'm really honored that you come on today. I've never had a chance to sit down with a person who has survived what you have survived, who has come to the point. I have seen a lot of women who are broken, and I've seen a lot of people that are still stuck in their trauma. But to see you glowing and speaking up and representing, I, I'm just grateful you came on. And thank you so much. Um, I just appreciate your time. Thank you, Denise. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate that. You're welcome. Um, I'll say goodbye to everybody else now. And then uh, I'll talk to you for a little bit after. But thank you, everyone who listened today. I hope this helped. I hope you help children around you. If you suspect that someone around you is enduring this sort of life, please do what Denise said and reach out to them and see if you can help. All right. I'll see you guys later. Bye.